welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We shall continue in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. We're coming to its great conclusion, the capstone of the book, and we're entering into chapter 24, the final chapter, and the great story of the resurrection and his appearances to his beloved followers and the ascension. It is uh, the, uh, the upward movement of this great Gospel story we've been in together. So now we uh, move into chapter 24, and let me read in your hearing this marvelous text, Luke's version of the resurrection. So will you hear along with me God's word? Luke writes, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's unmatchable word about history's greatest event. May we see it in all of its greatness and know its hope in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I know that life has been swirling around you as it always does, and me as well in the daily life and work that we have. But uh, due to our connected world, Events that happen 12,000 feet beneath some part of the ocean we hadn't thought of before can grip us none the same. And I'm sure you've followed, uh, as I have, the story of the week. It began last weekend. The story of the Titan, a submersible that uh, ran into trouble on a sightseeing tour, you could call it, 12,000 feet below the sea with five individuals on board who were, were descending into the depths to gain a personal view of the wreck of the Titanic. And 
I'm sure in the uh, weeks, uh, in the days rather, that that story was unfolding, you were checking on it as we're bound to do when we're caught up in a human drama that we imagine could have even happened to someone like us. And so things became familiar, and we, we thought over the 96 hours, everybody knew that's how long the oxygen was expected to last in the submersible before all hope was lost. And we we rehearsed in our minds what it must be like for these individuals to wait through that time of hopelessness and impending death. And during that time, uh, human hope ran for these people, but also the ugliness of humanity showed itself forth. And there was a lot of raw and thoughtless humor and, and uh, mocking that, that went around the world about, well, jokes about the rich and jokes about someone thinking a craft was unsinkable and uh, the arrogance that might have surrounded the design of that vessel. It turns out it was designed uh, in ways that were unwise and, and uh, only five inches of wrapped carbon fiber separated these people from thousands of pounds of pressure from the sea. And we began to discover all kinds of things about that craft and how it was misdesigned perhaps and the arrogance that might have surrounded it and people even talked about the irony of it all and then we got the horrible news that no the end had come in a millisecond it had happened without warning and there'd been a sudden implosion of the vessel and those five precious lives were lost in a moment a terrifying moment So we've all reflected on that, and I'm sure that you've had your own thoughts about it, and different people in the public domain have have checked in online, as they're wont to do now, people that have uh, tribes of followers and that are influencers, and like I said, a lot of the commentary was thoughtless, some of it was was deeper, and I saw that faith leaders checked into uh, the Twitter sphere and everything else about this, and most of them had just kind of uh, innocent and innocuous words about hope or, or sympathy and, or even congratulations to these individuals who lost their lives. The, there was the idea to congratulate them over doing something that was noble and adventurous. But I'll bet that you also had some other thoughts run through your mind, that this was not just an opportunity to congratulate people on daring to move into the depths of something that others wouldn't, but this was a time to contemplate something too. I'm sure that ran through your mind. This was a living example of the frailty of human life and the absolute certainty that death can break in literally upon you in a moment unexpected and sweep you away. This was an opportunity to contemplate the frailty of human life, that they were five inches of carbon fiber away from thousands and thousands of pounds of pressure and blackness. And how did they know that when they were lowered into the water, perhaps joking as they went and firing up their iPhones to make sure they had enough battery to take pictures through the porthole of the bow of that ship, how did they know that in a matter of less than two hours, 120 minutes, they would suddenly be brought into the unknown of death. The frailty of life, 
the absolute certainty of death, and the question of what is beyond it. This was a worldwide opportunity to contemplate those realities. Perhaps you did. Well, the Bible has a place among all books. It is the book that is the most honest and the most transparent about what we need to contemplate about death and about what is beyond Was life simply snuffed out for these people and the end of existence achieved 12,000 feet down in a small tube suddenly enveloped by darkness? Was that all of life that there was for them? Are they gone now? Are they ended? Were they like blips on a screen? Brain activity stopped, heart rate suddenly arrested, and and your physical, physical existence horrendously ended? And is that the end for them? Was that the end for them? Or is there more? And I'll tell you right now that the Bible says not only is there something greater after physical death, but there was one who prepared the way for you to not only answer that question for you, but prepare yourself for that eternal other reality. We go to the scriptures and we find that the Bible has a clear message about what can occur and what will occur, a a step into eternity after a death, whether it's sudden and, and, and remarkable like theirs or whether it's mundane like what might happen in a hospice room. One author I read this week said this, now we understand that the message that God has delivered to human beings throughout all of Scripture is that death does not end our existence. That is the message of Scripture from the start to the finish. The death is merely the doorway into eternity. And everyone goes through that doorway, everyone. And everyone lives forever, everyone. Some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of damnation, which is a borrowing of the words of Jesus from John 5. Gentle Jesus spoke about arising to the judgment of God in eternity. Christ himself said that. Every human being ever born will live forever. This is the Bible's record. Every human being ever born will live forever, fully conscious, either in everlasting joy or everlasting suffering. So this was not a story just to, to, to look at and pass by. This was an opportunity to contemplate that reality. This author goes on, for those who by faith have come into the kingdom of God, into the realm of salvation, the promise is that they, after death, will experience a resurrection unto life that not only will their spirits dwell forever in the presence of God in eternal bliss, but they will one day receive a resurrected body fit for that everlasting joy. This has been the hope of God's people throughout all redemptive history. It was the hope of Abraham, as Hebrews 11 would tell you. It was the history hope of Moses, as we learn in Scripture as well. It was the hope of Job. It was the hope of Isaiah. It was the hope of Daniel in the Old Testament record. All of these prophetic voices. And it has always been the hope of God's people into the New Testament era. But even in the Old, whether it's the psalmist who says, I know that someday I will wake in his likeness, or whether it was Job who said, the worms destroy this body yet in my flesh shall I see God the hope of resurrection has always been at the heart of believers faith and it comes to crystal clarity through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who said in John 14 19 because I live you will live also oh mark that his resurrection predicts your resurrection 
He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then Paul, articulating in even, in even greater detail later in Revelation, uh, the Revelation of the New Testament, 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, said, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, namely Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, as we saw them die 12,000 feet below, so also in Christ all shall be made alive but each in his own order Christ the first fruits and after that those who are Christ's at his coming are you Christ's at his coming you will rise resurrection has always been anticipated in the scripture and it will be fully realized for us because one day 2,000 years ago it was realized by Jesus himself so when you look at the passing of human life it is never, never an ordinary event. It is never something to pass by. It is something to contemplate and to understand the reality that lies behind it. Death brings you into eternity. Will you be prepared? So the resurrection is critical to your understanding of how you will face death. And now we come to one of the resurrection chapters, chapter 24, and it is filled with certainty about the resurrection. One of the great themes of this, of this section, as Luke writes it out, is the reality of the resurrection, the certainty of it, the undeniability of it. And we're going to see that today. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this passage, said this, the resurrection of Christ is one of the great foundation stones of the Christian faith. In practical importance, it is second only to the crucifixion. The chapter in Luke that we have now begun directs our mind to the evidence of the resurrection. It contains unanswerable proof that Jesus not only died, but rose again. And that's what we're going to see. The simple fact is Jesus rose, the evidence is in, the witnesses are clear, and the arguments against Jesus rising fall apart. And this chapter contains much about that. And so I've entitled this message, Resurrection Realities. And I'm going to give you six realities as we open the passage together that we see about that resurrection morning that apply now to how we look at it 2,000 years later. Six resurrection realities and then also three myths or arguments against the resurrection that this chapter answers. The skeptics and the critics of the resurrection have repeated themselves and embarrassed themselves for 2,000 years. And I find it fascinating that before they ever came up with their specious and empty and mocking excuses against the resurrection, the Bible preempted them and disproved them in advance. And this comes from someone who had his own false arguments against the resurrection early in his life. You're going to see how the Bible takes these apart. So we're going to go through these six resurrection realities as the body of the message, and along the way I'll show you three of these myths. Resurrection reality one. Go to the passage now, and we're going to take, pardon the pun, but a deep dive <laughs> into the details of this text. So stick with me. We're going to talk about a lot of research. We're going to go into the, the meaning of the words and the connection of these events in time. There's so much here. This was a real event. 
witnessed by real people. So resurrection reality one is we see the expectation of the women. Now, the women uh, at the tomb form the main characters in this narrative, but there are others as well. But I want to begin by asking you to remember the chain of events. This actually started in the previous chapter we just concluded. Back in chapter 23, we know the crucifixion scene is described. And the Bible tells us that some of the women who I believe were at the tomb in this chapter had watched the resurrection and they were gathered with some, with Mary and John and others from afar. They were watching this, the Bible says. And so it is safe to assume that the women in this chapter, Mary Magdalene among them and others, had seen the crucifixion take place. It is safe to assume that in verse 46 of chapter 23, they heard Jesus say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They watched him engineer his own death. They watched him die. I think it's probable that they stayed and lingered at the tomb after death, and they were lingered, they, they stayed there for quite some time. I think it's possible that they were there to see Joseph of Arimathea come back to the cross and physically take down the body of Jesus, as we studied last week in chapter 23. They were there, we know, at the end of the chapter to follow Joseph and Nicodemus to Joseph's tomb. And the Bible says in chapter 55 of 23 that the women followed Joseph to the tomb, saw him place Christ's body and wrap it, and wrap it in the spices, 75 pounds worth wrapping the limbs and the torso, placing it in a linen shroud, and then placing a wrapping around the head. They saw all of that happen. And they saw him place the body of Christ on the burial ledge in the inner a room of that tomb. And they saw Joseph roll the stone across the face of it. They were all there to see that. And we know that the scripture says that they desired to do their own part in preparing more spices to anoint the body of Jesus, who they thought was dead and gone. They thought they had lost him. And so they wanted to do something in addition to what Nicodemus and Joseph had done out of their love for Jesus. And so they prepared spices that evening. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the law, verse 56 of chapter 23. And then on the first day of the week, it says, they were coming back to the tomb, hoping that somehow someone would be there to move the stone away so they could bring their own spices and anoint Christ's dead body even more. They loved him that much, but they also believed he was that dead. Very important part of the story. So now we pick up in chapter 24, verse 1. Three days have passed. Christ was placed into the tomb uh, on Friday. All, all, through, all through Saturday, the body rested there. And then sometime early Sunday morning, we would call it Sunday. They called it the first day of the week. The resurrection had already occurred so let's look at the language together and see, the, uh, understand what the, ex the women expected as they went. But on the first day of the week, it's interesting how the Jews described the calendar. This is some of the detail we'll talk, we talked about. In, in Jewish terms, this is the day after the seventh day. What was the seventh day of the week to a Jewish person? It was the Sabbath. Some sunset Friday through sunset Saturday. So their seventh day was the Sabbath day, and the, the first day after that, they called it the first day of the week. You and I would refer to it as Sunday. A Christian sometimes today refer to Sunday as the Sabbath, but that's not accurate from a Jewish perspective. All four Gospels make a point of the fact that the resurrection took place on Sunday. In fact, from that day on, believers set aside the first day of the week, we call it Sunday, 
to meet and remember and worship. Why? Because that was the day Jesus rose. So on the first day of the week, they come. The third day that Jesus had been in the tomb. They came at early dawn. They didn't want to wait a moment longer. As soon as the daylight broke so that they could find their way to the tomb, they came bearing these spices in their arms. How much they loved Jesus. How much they wanted to honor him. How earnest they were. And they came to the tomb. It says they went to the tomb. Remember I said there's three myths? Here's the first one that this disproves, and and so many other parts of the scripture disprove it. One of the myths that's been circulated for, for centuries about the fact that the tomb was empty has been this. Well, the tomb was never empty. Jesus stayed in the tomb. He stayed buried in the tomb. You see, the women, they went to the wrong tomb that morning. They went to the wrong tomb. You know, they were upset, and of course, you know how women are with directions anyway, and pardon me, ladies, but that's how stupid this myth is. So I, had, I, I just thought I'd joke about it a little bit. Oh, they just went to the wrong tomb and they went to a tomb that was open and empty and they thought it was the tomb where Jesus had been. And they were so believing in the resurrection, they wanted to believe it so badly that they just ran out and told this story that popped into their minds. Oh, really? No, the Bible doesn't say they went to a place that they guessed was the tomb. The Bible doesn't say they went to the place that they best of their best of the recollection under their emotional moment tried to recall was the tomb. They didn't, it doesn't even say they stopped and asked for directions, which we know a woman would. What would a man do? Stay home and see if something is on ESPN. I mean, that's what, I mean, none of that. What does it say? They went to the tomb. How did they know it was the tomb? Because in the previous chapter, they had been there three days before. And they had watched Nicodemus and Joseph go to the tomb. They'd watched where the body was laid in the tomb. They knew where it was. How ridiculous. This just points out that so many who who say they can't believe in the resurrection, it's not that they can't believe, it's that they won't believe. And so they look for any kind of flimsy excuse to, to, to give them reason not to believe, but they never come up with excuses that stand scrutiny. What a dumb idea. The women went to the wrong tomb. I answered that in about 10 seconds. And there's some people that say, well, that's good enough for me. The resurrection could have never happened. Admit the fact that if you're a skeptic today, your arguments of, against Christianity are like tissue paper. A good answer pushes right through them. And then you have to face the fact that it's not that you can't believe, it's that you won't believe. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. So the women are coming to the tomb. But here's where we begin to to see what they were expecting. Why did they come to the tomb? What were they carrying? Spices. What were the spices for? To further wrap around a dead body. They were expecting not to find a risen Jesus. They didn't go to the tomb on the third day saying, let's get going right now because Jesus said he would rise and we got to go meet him. We got to go and be there early to watch this. No, he's dead. He's gone. Let's anoint his body one more time. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of our version of taking something to the grave of a loved one who's just died. If you have a loved one who's just passed away and you take flowers to the cemetery over the weekend after they died, 
Is it because you're expecting to see an empty grave? No. That's, they were going because they believed he was dead. Now, the scripture says that they, as they went, and I believe in Mark's rendition of this, they said to one another, as they were going, who will be there to roll away the stone? They knew a two and, two and a half ton stone had, been, had rolled over the face of that grave. And they didn't know how that was going to happen, but they said, we're just going to go. What did they expect? A tomb with a body in it. They expected nothing to have changed. And they knew how heavy that stone was. They had experience with it. And by the way, I mean, the, the, the gravestone, it was rounded and it was on a ledge that would rolled into a, into a trough in the front of the grave. So it was meant once it was rolled not to be open. And those things are heavy. Boulders are big. I just finished having a 40-foot retaining wall put in the back of my house with boulders. That was an experience. Where they're bringing all the heavy equipment and they're bringing all these things in there. And I, I asked the guy, you know, with, with, with the big heavy equipment, I said, are you sure that none of this will give way and the rocks won't move? I won't have any erosion. He laughed at me. He says, take a look at this one. This, it was a boulder. It was about like, about like this here, about that high and about that wide. He says, guess how much that weighs? He said, I don't know, a few hundred pounds. He said, try 4,000. So that rock would have been a problem, but they kept going anyway. Well, the rock was moved because we know when they got to the tomb, the rock was, how did the rock get moved? By the way, do you know a little bit about the backstory of the resurrection? All four gospel writers give us all the details and the other gospel writers, particularly Matthew and Matthew 28, talk about what happened before the women got there earlier in the morning. In fact, the day before. As after Jesus was placed in the grave, the Jews worried that the disciples would come and steal the body, the Jewish leaders who had ex executed Jesus. So what did they do? They went to who? To Pilate. And they said, we're, we're afraid that they might steal the body and perpetuate a rumor about Jesus rising. And so we want a guard over the tomb. And Pilate said, you have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you can. And so they put a four-pointed Roman seal across the, the, the face of that rock. Disturbing that meant death automatically. And there was a, a squadron of guards, train guards, who were standing there around the tomb. Do you think that stopped the resurrection? No, because early... On the first day, before these women were moving in Jerusalem very early in the morning, Jesus rose. His body just moved right through that, that encasing of grave clothes. He moved out of that tomb. And after that, an angel descended, the Bible says, onto that rock, grabbed that bad boy, rolled it out of the way, and sat upon it in electrifying glory. At the same time, a great earthquake occurred right there at that site. Earthquake, angel arriving, stone rolled away, thousands of pounds in weight, angel sitting upon it. By the way, why was the stone rolled away? So Jesus could get out? No. Supernatural body, he would walk through walls later. No, not so Jesus could get out. It's so that they could get in and see that he was not there. The rock was rolled for you and for every other skeptic throughout all of eternity to believe that Jesus was really gone. And 
At that moment, when the angel comes and the earthquake happens and this massive show of light from the angel's presence is there, the guards look in, see the body gone, and they pass out in terror. They're lying on the ground for some time, the scripture says. Then they finally wake up, know that they're toast because the one they were supposed to guard is gone, but they know it was a resurrection. So they run back into town to tell the Jewish leaders that put them on the job in the first place, we don't know how to tell you this, but it really happened. He's gone. He's not in the tomb. There was an angel. There was an earthquake. There was a sudden flash of light, and he's gone. And so what did the Jewish rulers do? To show you how corrupt they were, instead of taking the few-minute walk out there to see for themselves, they would not believe. Isn't it interesting? Jesus said, even if someone were to come back from the dead and rise from the dead, he told the rich man in the story, they will not believe. They don't believe. Instead, they said, listen, we're going to pay you all the money you need. You lie to Pilate. You tell them, you tell them that the disciples came and stole the body. We'll back you up. And so that myth has been perpetuated through this day. And so that had all happened before the women got there is what I'm trying to say. So now you pick it up in verse uh, three, but when they and they found, verse 2, pardon me, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. That's how all that happened, is what I'm trying to put into your mind. But they were still expecting to find a dead body. So the first point here, the first reality of resurrection is the expectation of the women was completely against resurrection, as I, as I bring it to a point of clarity here. All of this is to say, that they woke up that morning expecting to go and anoint a dead man. They were not expecting to see a risen Lord. Keep that in your mind. That's important. Here's resurrection reality number two. We know go from the expectation of the women in verses one and two to the consternation of the women. Look at verse three. But when they went in, it went into where? They went into the, the, the opening of that tomb And they looked at that ledge where the body of Jesus had been three days before. They'd seen that with their own eyes. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it says in the next verse, they were perplexed about this. That's putting it mildly. I use the word consternation. That's reality too, is the consternation of the women. Now that's an old word, but I chose it carefully. What does consternation mean? Definition from the dictionary, consternation, noun, a state of great alarm, agitation, or dismay, astonishment combined with terror, yep. Amazement that confounds the faculties and incapacitates for deliberate thought and action, extreme surprise with confusion and panic. Why did I choose the word? Because the Greek word perplexed there basically says the same thing. The Greek word perplexed, apareo, meant to be at a loss, to be in a confused state of mind, And it's in the present tense. They were continually perplexed. It came upon them. They looked at each other. The present tense and the word says refers to a high state of confusion and anxiety. They were seeing something they never expected and that they could not explain. They were at a loss for all this. Now you put both of these together. The fact that they were expecting to anoint a dead body of a human hope that had been crucified, not the Lord God. And reality number two, they come in and they don't find the body. All of this together means, listen, they were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Now listen, why are those first two points important? Because it destroys myth number two. Myth number two 
is that the women and the disciples believed so much that Jesus would rise, were so convinced that it was going to happen, that they hallucinated the whole thing. This is a very popular argument against the resurrection. It didn't happen physically, but they wanted it to be so true that they hallucinated the whole thing. Well, as I've looked at that argument, I've seen that social scientists and psychologists have talked about what needs to be in place for you to hallucinate about something. And you know, one of the first things they say is required, a desire and a belief that it could happen. What did I just show you? I just showed you that 11 disciples are sitting in an upper room in despair and fear of being arrested, not thinking about a resurrection. And I just showed you that the women themselves were coming to anoint a dead man. They didn't believe this was going to happen. And when they walked into the room and they saw the body not there, it didn't even dawn on their minds that this had been a resurrection. Mary Magdalene in another gospel ran from that moment believing that somebody had stolen the body of Jesus. Isn't that true? So none of them believed it was going to happen. So the very first requirement for a hallucination is that you believe that it's possible and you dearly want it to happen. Not true with these people. And by the way, if they hallucinated, somebody else hallucinated before they did. Who? The detachment of soldiers. Big hallucination going on there. After the women hallucinated, following the soldiers, then John and Peter would both have to hallucinate. And then when the women encountered Jesus, the risen Jesus in the garden later, I'll tell you about that. Then they would have to have hallucinated about that. When Mary met Jesus, she would have had to hallucinate about that. The disciples meeting Jesus in the upper room, not once, but twice would have had to group hallucinate about that. And then up to 500 believers some days later on a hillside in Galilee would have all had to have had the same hallucination at the same time in the same detail detail. You see how ridiculous this is? I'm, I'm drawing this out, by the way. That's how ridiculous that myth would be. And these understandings destroy it all. The women, their expectation was a dead, say, a de a dead Jesus. Their consternation came when they saw something that just didn't match what they were expecting. Let's go to resurrection reality number three. The angels step in, but when they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, while they were perplexed, knocked out of their heads, totally in shock because they were seeing something that didn't match what they thought was possible. Behold, verse four, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Who were they? Well, the other gospel writers tell us they were angels. And whenever angels show up, you get the biblical word, behold. What's the translation of that word? Here's our modern English translation. Boom! <laughs> it's the John Madden version, if you're interested. There it is. In other words, it declares the arrival of the heavenly, the supernatural, the remarkable. Boom! Behold, these visitors come. And it says, they suddenly were standing by them, stood by them, ephistemi, stood by them there on the floor of the tomb, as close as you would be to somebody in a conversation. Suddenly, boom, time and, and, and space and light and all the rules of our universe split for a moment, and they came from the throne room of heaven, boom, into that tomb with these women and stood near them. 
A.T. Robertson, in his analysis of this word, says it's in the secondarist active indicative, this version of ephistemi, and it's a common verb that usually means to step up suddenly or to burst upon someone. So that's what happens, right? And the Bible says they're in dazzling apparel. Astrapo, it came from a word that related the word for lightning. Bright flashing apparel. It's only used one other time in the Gospels, and that talks about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when he opened up his glory in that one moment, and heaven showed up on the mountain. It's the glory of eternity. All of a sudden, eternity steps into this tomb in the presence of these two angels. Now, they're angels, the Bible says, the other Gospel writers, and sometimes angels can take on visible form. And it seems that when they do, the other, another part of the, well, the scripture right here talks about they, they, were, they were standing there and, and two men, other gospel writer says they were young men. What do angels look like? Apparently, when they take on form, they look like young men. I don't know how far to take that, but that's the way that is. Dazzling, perfect young men. And they're standing there. They're visible. They can communicate. And the result is predictable. It says, when the women saw them, verse 5, they were frightened. Phobos, we get our word phobia. They were totally shocked, totally frightened, speechless, and they bowed their faces to the ground. They just hit the deck. I mean, their faces were on, on the floor of that tomb, terrified in the presence of supernatural holiness. And of course, we know that that's exactly what happens when angels split time and the laws of light and physics, and they show up in our world. And we, are, we, are, we almost have the oxygen sucked out of our spiritual being by the holiness that they represent. It's what happened to Isaiah when, when he saw the presence of the Lord and the greatness of God in Isaiah 6. Ezekiel, the same thing, when he experienced the arrival of, of uh, uh, you know, the presence of angels. John experienced it in the first part of Revelation in, in that great perception and vision of the glorified Son of God. And that's what happens when holy, eternal beings come into this space that we call ours. I was wondering if angels ever get tired of that. I mean, can you imagine a couple of angels talking on break in heaven? They're talking about their assignments. He says, yeah, I was was sent down to be in such and such a situation. And one angel says to the other, hey, do they always fall down when you show up too? Yeah, I get that a lot, you know. And then maybe they would say, if they only knew that we were sent there to serve them, and then one day they'll rule over us. <laughs> sent, angelos, it meant sent one. They were sent with, on a task or with a message. That's what happens when angels show up. One of the two is happening. They're either there to do something, a task to protect or defend or, or battle, or they are there to tell you something. They're there, they're to bring a message from God, as Daniel's experiences and others were. So what were they sent to do? Well, they were sent to explain the impossible. They were sent to explain to these women what these women could not comprehend. They were sent as a divine gift to them so that God himself would explain what God himself had done. Look at the text. The women are face down on the ground. The men to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? It, it's, and, and many commentators have pointed out, it's a little bit of a rebuke. 
You should have known this. You shouldn't be this surprised. He's he's the Lord of life. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why was Jesus the living among the dead? Because he was the first, his body now having risen and punctured the, the physicality of death. He was in the first everlasting resurrection body of many to come. What about all the other dead people in that cemetery? Still physically dead. There was only one living one in that cemetery. He is the living one. So they'd come looking for a dead body. They'd come looking for the wrong thing. They said, he isn't dead. He's the living one. And all of these dead ones stay. Why do you look for the living among the dead But then he, they, go, they go further and they say, He is not here, but has risen. Egero, it meant to, to rise up from a sitting or a lying position. It also meant to awaken from sleep. And it's figuratively used in the Bible to awaken from death or the rise up. It's also in what they call the divine passive. In other words, Jesus was raised. The Bible says that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit both worked and and participated in the raising of Jesus from the dead. The Trinity shows up. The plan of God, the intimacy of it all is amazing. Oh, he's not among the dead. He is the living one. And God has raised him up. And they were there, sent from the throne room, to tell them about it. And they had to be sent because the women wouldn't have put it together on their own. Because this is out of the mind of man. So I want to tell you something. How do you apply this to your thinking about the resurrection? It tells me the resurrection is not a natural event that can be explained. It is a supernatural event that must be believed. I'm going to repeat that for the sake of those that you weren't with me. The resurrection is not a natural event that can be explained. It is a supernatural event that must be believed. They couldn't have explained it. They didn't expect it. It goes against all the laws of physicality and medicine and physics and time. No, it's not a natural event you can explain. This helps as you talk to the skeptic. Because I've spoken to so many who will admit that, yes, I think history does teach that Jesus of Nazareth did live, as most historians will admit, Believing or secular, the vast majority admit, yes, Jesus was a figure in history. And they might go on and say, yes, I believe most of what what is said about where he lived in Jerusalem, the time he lived. I I believe that the, the, the gospel writers do faithfully talk a lot about his teachings. I believe we know a lot about what he taught and how he lived. And, and they might even go so far. I've known individuals who go as far, so far as to say, and I actually believe Pontius Pilate crucified him. I think history proves all of that. By the way, secular Roman history confirms that, not just the biblical record. But either way, I've met people that say, I believe all of that. And then there's a hard stop. And they say, but I can't believe in the resurrection. I say, why? They say, because I don't believe in the supernatural. I don't believe the laws of nature and time and science can be violated. And for a long time... I took that as an unanswerable challenge because I, w- I was trying to prove the supernatural by the natural. But then I came to realize that's not a problem. 
Of course you can't accept the supernatural. You have to believe the supernatural. Of course you can't prove the resurrection. You have to believe the resurrection. It is a moment where you need to step into the realm of faith. For by grace we are saved through being scientifically persuaded in the reality of, no, the Bible didn't say that. There comes a time when you leave your skeptic's pride and your demand that everything fit into the laws that you understand and you accept that, no, by definition, God is supernatural. And he conquered death in a supernatural way. And it was so hard for these women to believe that God had to send two angelos, messengers, to help their, their, their understanding open. And I believe he does that through the power and the person of the Holy Spirit today under the teaching of the gospel. But that's another story. But don't you tell me that because you can't naturally explain the resurrection that you can't accept it. Oh, you can. You just have to accept it by faith. So if you're getting hung up on that with a skeptic in your world, maybe that will help you. Skeptics today, it's not because they cannot. It is but because they will not. Resurrection reality four. Now we keep going in the passage. Don't, don't lose your way. So the revelation of the angels. First there was the expectation of the women. Then there was the consternation of the women at seeing something they couldn't understand. Then there's the revelation from the angels. And I chose that word carefully too, because that's what it was. They were showing these women something they couldn't humanly imagine or understand. And they, they brought it from the throne room. And now we go to resurrection reality four, the recollection of the women. Now it starts to, the, the mission of the angels begins to be accomplished. They say in verse six, he's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise and verse eight and they remembered his words so there's more to the angel's message here not only do they tell him about the supernatural but they remind them that jesus had predicted this time and time and time again remember how he told you it's it's all, not just a rebuke but it's a gentle reminder and, and they, they summarize the gospel beautifully here, by the way. It's the same thing that Jesus said about his mission over and over and over again. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Son of Man is incarnation, perfect life. Must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, Passion Week, and all of, of the drama leading up to that, all the trials, all the betrayal, everything under the hand of God, and be crucified and on the third day rise. That's the story of the mission of Jesus. So many people today come up with weird and weak understandings of why Jesus really came. He came to be a great teacher. One of the greatest. I like him a lot. I read him with a lot of other people when I'm not, you know, reading my Dean Koontz novels. I, I, Jesus is cool. Oh, no. He came as one of the great philosophers of any age, and I put him up there with, with so many others. Did he come as a philosopher? No. Did he come as a teacher? No. Did he come as an inspiring, an inspiring example? That's the latest one in our generation. A great moral compass for any time. No. Heaven will tell you why he came. This is what they talk about in heaven. This is why they're going to welcome Jesus back to the earth when he takes over 
as the King of kings and Lord of lords because he was the one who was he came as the Son of Man, was delivered in the hands of sinful men, crucified, and on the third day rose. That's what the angels celebrate in heaven. That's what they came to tell these women. They get the gospel there. <laughs> Isn't that cool? But they rebuke them and say, remember, he told you all of this, and that's true. I went back over the gospel. There's, there's too many verses for me to quote you of all the times that Jesus said exactly that. There's a few times in Luke that I can give you. Luke 9, 22, the son of man, Jesus said, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Later on in Luke 18, then he took the 12 aside, said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the Gentiles, the Romans, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon prophetic. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. That's passion week in a sentence. And he told it to him over and over again. Matthew 12, 40, Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, 22, and 23, Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, Mark 8, 31, Matthew 26, 2. And also his enemies knew it to be true about him because in Matthew 27, after Jesus was put in the grave, remember I told you the rulers went to the Romans and said, we're afraid the disciples are going to take his body. In Matthew 27, 63, his enemies said to Pilate, Pilate, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. So even his enemies heard him say it enough to know that he predicted it. So the angels remind these women And for God's own reasons, they and the disciples were under this shroud of sorrow and unbelief and their minds were just, I don't know how to to describe it, but how they couldn't remember it, it's it's just a human reality. But slowly in this passage and next week, we're going to, in the next few weeks, we're going to see that their minds become enlightened and it goes to a glimmer. And finally, when the Holy Spirit arrives, it becomes a flame. It says they finally began to remember, which kind of gives me encouragement because it shows me that even Jesus suffered from the preacher's problem. And what's a preacher's problem? Every preacher who's ever preached over a people knows this story. But one of your people comes and they say they went to hear so-and-so teach or they whatever, they stumbled across it in a book and they tell you this principle from the word. And you look at him and you say, but I've been preaching that over your life for years. I must have told that in a message a dozen times. They look at you and say, you did? Well, I don't know. When so-and-so said that, that was the first time I got it. <laughs> Any preachers out there understand that? And they say, isn't that awesome? And you kind of go, yeah, that's awesome. So the angels were sent, and they did their job because the women not only remembered verse 6 and verse, through verse 7, they rem- I'm sorry, verse 8, they remembered his words, and look what they did next. This is powerful. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. So they acted on the rebuke. They acted on the revelation. That's the great part of it. And they returned. So let's go to the next. This is the last uh, two realities, Resurrection Reality 5, is they went from, from consternation 
and perplexity to the proclamation. They got at the proclamation of the women returning from the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven. They did it right. They came in ignorance. They saw what God had done. They heard God's explanation. And I believe they believed. I think that they got it. And how else do I know that? In Matthew's version, in Matthew 28, he says they not only left that tomb to go tell the disciples, it says they left with great fear and great joy. Why? I think they understood it. I think they believed in resurrection from the angel's explanation, and they saw an empty tomb. They saw the grave closed that Jesus had supernaturally moved through. And I also says in Matthew 28, they, saw, they left with great fear and great joy, and they ran. They ran because they had good news. Something wonderful happened. And by the way, something wonderful happened on their way between the tomb and getting to the 11 that Luke doesn't record here. Between verse 9 and verse 11, they're, they're running, but on the way, who do they meet in the garden? Jesus. He arranges for them to meet him. And they see him there. And he says, greetings. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Greetings. And they fall at his feet and worship him and he sends them on their way. He says, go tell them I'm risen and go tell them that I want to meet them in Galilee. And so now they have this, this, this encounter with Christ and so they're fully onto it and they, they run all the way and they run right up the, the hillside and through the gates and they run up the winding road, uh, winding street rather, to that place called the upper room where they knew that the 11 were at that moment and they want to burst through the doors with this great story but instead they run smack dab into the greatest biblical buzzkill of all time. <laughs> but these words seemed to them, the disciples, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Now we get to the last resurrection reality, and that is the rationalization of the disciples. I'll tell you what, Luke always made a point of showing that for some reason, in the human framing of things, the women who followed Jesus came to faith faster, held to faith harder, and understood deeper. It's not an inescapable reality, but it's something to bear in mind. He compliments them, and these disciples held on to their fears longer, and they would not believe they were true to form, really. They were kind of disappointing. But all that would change, and the Lord would still use them to reach the world, but it's just interesting. So they come into the room, and they, they we've seen the Lord. And they describe the, the, the ledge on the tomb and the grave clothes undisturbed as though a body had moved through them, and they described everything they saw, and they described the angels and what the angel said, and, and they, they told these things, it says, verse 10. They gave him the whole story. And these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. So they got the whole story and the disciples rationalized it away. He says, that can't be true. That's, it just can't be true. In fact, it's a little insulting. The original language here, Leros in the Greek, was often used in the medical language of the time to talk about the wild talk of a person who was delirious. You're imagining this. 
You're out of your mind. It says they would not believe him, and it's in the imperfect, which means that the more the women talked about it, the more the disciples all said, no. You're imagining this. You're out of your mind. You're babbling. So they were rationalizing for reasons that only God knows. But that's not to say that some of them weren't curious, and now we close with it. But Peter, I'm just so glad. Now that's, those two words describe Peter throughout the Gospels, don't, don't they? But Peter, most of the time you're going, but Peter. <laughs> However, the farther the Gospels go, you begin to see, but Peter. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping in, looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. John 20, which we don't have the time to turn to, says that John went with him and they, they saw the grave clothes, the, the encasing that had been wrapped around Jesus that was solidifying 75 pounds worth, undisturbed. His resurrection body had moved right through it. If somebody had stolen that body, they would have taken the whole thing. And then the, the napkin that had wrapped his head, it had been taken and folded neatly and set by itself to another place. Jesus keeps house. Who knew? The evidence was there. The angels came for the women. God left to the evidence for the men. And, and Peter looked at it and marveled. It actually says at that point, John believed and he got it. But Peter was marveling. He just didn't quite know how to put it all together. So there was the rationalization of the disciples. It would soon give way to faith. Don't be too disappointed in them. But here's the third myth. Remember I told you three myths? The third myth that's very popular about the resurrection is that tomb was not empty, but the disciples invented the story that it was. They invented it. They crafted a lie because they deeply wanted it to happen and believed it should have happened. And this proves that that's entirely impossible because when angels announced it and women said they saw him, what was their reaction? Ah. So the human basis of that myth is destroyed. They would never have fabricated a resurrection since they were not expecting one. Leon Morris in his commentary said, the apostles were not men poised on the brink of belief. That's putting it mildly. And needing only a shadow of an excuse before launching forth into a proclamation of the re resurrection, they were utterly skeptical. Even when women they knew well told them of their experiences, they refused to believe. In fact, the unbelief of the apostles is one of the strongest indirect evidences that Jesus rose from the dead. If the, the disciples were at first so reluctant to believe our Lord's resurrection and were at last then became thoroughly persuaded days later, Christ must have risen. In other words, they went out and suffered for it. All but one died a martyr's death for it. And here's the thing. Philosophers agree. Nobody would invent a lie they knew was a lie and then go out and suffer and die for it. 
And they thought it couldn't have happened. So, the resurrection. We know from the scriptural record that Peter and John and the rest of the the 11 did go on to believe in the resurrection and to suffer for it. And people have done so ever since, me included, you. Why? Because the evidence is enough to believe. God saw to that. That's the whole point, I think, behind the way Luke structures the narrative. The evidence is there. It's undeniable. British New Testament scholar B.F. Westcott once said, taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but a determined assumption that it must be false could suggest the idea of deficiency in the proof of it. Modern translation, the proof of the resurrection is historically powerful. The only way you can avoid it is by saying you just won't believe. And that's where we are today. Maybe you're hearing me and you have yet to believe. Maybe you're watching, you've got yet to believe. You remain in the skeptic's corner. Don't deny the evidence. Understand that it is a point of faith and decision. And don't forget that just like those people in that submersible, you could be inches or minutes away from stepping into the great beyond where you will discover everything you should have believed about the resurrection.